Welcome to the Enchanted Library, where we turn the pages of books, beautiful and old, living and magical. It's time to curl up, get cozy, and join us on an adventure. Today we're beginning Otto of the Silver Hand, written and illustrated by Howard Pyle. Forward. Between the faraway past history of the world and that which lies near to us, in the time when the wisdom of ancient times was dead and had passed away, and our own days of light had not yet come, there lay a great black gulf in human history, a gulf of ignorance, of superstition, of cruelty, and of wickedness, that time we call the Dark or Middle Ages. Few records remain to us of that dreadful period in our world's history, and we only know of it through broken and disjointed fragments that have been handed down to us through the generations. Yet though the world's life then was so wicked and black, there yet remained a few good men and women here and there, mostly in peaceful and quiet monasteries, far from the thunder and the glare of the world's bloody battle, who knew the right and the truth, and lived according to what they knew, who preserved and tenderly cared for the truths that the dear Christ taught and lived and died for in Palestine so long ago. This tale that I am about to tell is of a little boy who lived and suffered in those dark Middle Ages, of how he saw both the good and the bad of men, and how, by gentleness and love, and not by strife and hatred, he came at last to stand above other men, and to be looked up to by all. And should you follow the story to the end, I hope you may find it a pleasure, as I have done, to ramble through those dark ancient castles, to lie with little Otto and brother John in the high belfry tower, or to sit with them in the peaceful quiet of the sunny old monastery garden, for, of all the story, I love best those early peaceful years that little Otto spent in the dear old white cross on the hill. Poor little Otto's life was a stony and thorny pathway, and it is well for all of us nowadays that we walk it in fancy and not in truth. The Dragon's House Up from the gray rocks, rising sheer and bald and bare, stood the walls and towers of Castle Dranchenhausen, a great gateway with a heavy iron-pointed portcullis hanging suspended in the dim arch above, yawned blackly upon the bascule or falling drawbridge that spanned a chasm between the blank stone walls and the roadway that ran winding down the steep rocky slope to the little valley just beneath. There in the lap of the hills around stood clustered the wretched straw-thatched huts of the peasants belonging to the castle, miserable serfs who, half timid, half fierce, tilled their poor patches of ground, wrenching from the hard soil barely enough to keep body and soul together. Among those vile hovels played the little children like foxes about their dens, their wild, fierce eyes peering out from under a mat of tangled yellow hair. Beyond these squalid huts lay the rushing, foaming river, spanned by a high, rude stone bridge, where the road from the castle crossed it, and beyond the river stretched the great black forest, within whose gloomy depths the savage wild beasts made their lair, and where in winter time the howling wolves coursed their flying prey across the moonlit snow and under the network of the black shadows from the naked bows above. 
The watchmen in the cold, windy bartizan or watchtower that hung to the gray walls above the castle gateway looked from his narrow window, where the wind piped and hummed, across the treetops that rolled in endless billows of green, over hill and over valley, to the blue and distant slopes of the Kaiserberg, where on the mountainside glimmered far away the walls of the castle Trutzdrachen. Within the mass of stone walls, through which the gaping gateway led, three great cheerless brick buildings, so forbidding that even the yellow sunlight could not light them into brightness, looked down, with row upon row of windows, upon three sides of the bleak stone courtyard. Back and above them clustered a jumble of other buildings, tower and turret, one high-peaked roof overtopping another. The great house in the center was the baron's hall. The part to the left was called the Roderhausen. Between the two stood a huge square pile, rising dizzily up into the clear air high above the rest, the great Melchior Tower. At the top clustered a jumble of buildings hanging high aloft in the windy space, a crooked wooden belfry, a tall narrow watchtower, and a rude wooden house that clung partly to the roof of the great tower and partly to the walls. From the chimney of this crazy hut a thin thread of smoke would now and then rise into the air, for there were folk living far up in that empty, airy desert, and oftentimes wild, uncouth little children were seen playing on the edge of the dizzy height, or sitting with their bare legs hanging down over the sheer depths as they gazed below at what was going on in the courtyard. There they sat, just as little children in the town might sit upon their father's doorstep, and as the sparrows might fly around the feet of the little town children, so the circling flocks of rooks and daws flew around the feet of these airborne creatures. It was Schwartz Karl and his wife and little ones who lived far up there in the Melchior Tower, for it overlooked the top of the hill behind the castle, and so down into the valley upon the further side. There, day after day, Schwartz Karl kept watch upon the gray road that ran like a ribbon through the valley, from the rich town to Gruenstalt, to the rich town of Staffenbergen, were passed merchant caravans from the one to the other, for the lord of Drachenhausen was a robber baron. Dong, dong, the great alarm bell would suddenly ring out from the belfry high upon the Melchior Tower. Dong, dong, till the rooks and daws whirled clamoring and screaming. Dong, dong, till the fierce wolfhounds of the rocky kennels behind the castle stables howled dismally in answer. Dong, 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 dong. There would follow a great noise and uproar and hurry in the castle courtyard below. Men shouting and calling to one another, the ringing of armor and the clatter of horses' hooves upon the hard stone. With the creaking and groaning of the windlass, the iron-pointed portcullis would be slowly raised, and with a clank and rattle and clash of iron chains, the drawbridge would fall crashing. Then over it would thunder horse and man, clattering away down the winding, stony pathway, until the great forest would swallow them, and they would be gone. Then for a while peace would fall upon the castle courtyard. The cock would crow, the cook would scold a lazy maid, and Gretchen, leading out of a window, would sing a snatch of a song, just as though it were a peaceful farmhouse, instead of a den of robbers. Maybe it would be evening before the men would return once more. Perhaps one would have a bloody cloth bound about his head. Perhaps one would carry his arm in a sling. Perhaps one, 
maybe more than one, would be left behind, never to return again, and soon forgotten by all excepting some poor woman who would weep silently in the loneliness of her daily work. Nearly always the adventurers would bring back with them pack-horses laden with bales of goods. Sometimes, besides these, they would return with a poor soul, his hands tied behind his back, and his feet beneath the horse's body, his fur cloak and his flat cap woefully awry. A while he would disappear in some gloomy cell of the dungeon keep, until an envoy would come from the town with a fat purse. When his ransom would be paid, the dungeon would disgorge him, and he would be allowed to go on his way again. One man always rode beside Baron Conrad in his expeditions and adventures, a short, deep-chested, broad-shouldered man, with sinewy arms so long that when he stood his hands hung nearly to his knees. His coarse, close-clipped hair came so low upon his brow that only a strip of forehead showed between it and his bushy black eyebrows. One eye was blind, the other twinkled and gleamed like a spark under the penthouse of his brows. Many folks said that the one-eyed Hans had drunk beer with the hillman, who had given him the strength of ten, for he could bend an iron spit like a hazel twig, and could lift a barrel of wine from the floor to his head as easily as though it were a basket of eggs. As for the one-eyed Hans, he never said that he had not drunk beer with the hillman, for he liked the credit that such reports gave him with the other folk, and so, like a half-savage mastiff, faithful to death to his master, but to him alone, he went his sullen way and lived his sullen life within the castle walls, half respected, half feared by the other inmates, for it was dangerous trifling with the one-eyed Hans. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share our podcast with a friend. Stay connected by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash enchantedlibrary. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash enchantedlibrary. We appreciate your support. Until next time, friends, happy reading. <laughs>